Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith and Helen Scales, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how a new drug could boost the ability of heart failure patients to live a more active life. Now, both types of mice could carry on running for much longer when they'd had a dose of ITPP, up to 57% longer in healthy mice and around 30% more in the mice with heart failure. How researchers may have found a way to make the beta amyloid plaques that cause Alzheimer's harmless. And when they did tests on cells cultured in a dish and they added beta amyloid to the cells and some of these molecules, the cells all survived, like control cells that had had nothing added to them. But when they did the experiment with none of their new molecule, just beta amyloid, the cells died. And how songbirds surprised scientists with their speed. And they found that these songbirds could fly over 300 miles a day, which is astonishing, considering that they're really quite tiny. We never knew that songbirds really flew this far and this quickly. Plus, we'll be hearing how researchers have found the genetic root of all teeth, and it may help us to understand the evolution of feathers and fur. That's all on the way. We'll start up with a roundup of this week's science news. And it could be that a sip of water containing a compound that boosts the ability of blood to transport oxygen around the body could help people with heart failure to exercise again. Well, that's according to a study published this week in the journal PNAS by a team of scientists led by Jean-Marie Len from the University of Louis Pasteur in France. Now, they found that a compound called myoinositol tripyrophosphate, or thankfully ITPP for short, can help boost the amount of vigorous exercise that can be done by both healthy mice and mice with heart failure. Well, the team gave doses of ITPP to mice both as an injection and in drinking water. And some of the mice were normal and some had been genetically modified to have heart failure. Then they were tested um, to see what their exercise capacity was. And that was basically by putting these mice on tiny mouse treadmills, which I always think is rather an interesting idea to think of, an image in my head, and uh, see how long they can keep running for. Now, both types of mice could carry out uh, carry on running for much longer when they'd had a dose of ITPP, up to 57% longer in healthy mice and around 30% more um, in the mice with heart failure. And this response was dose-dependent, which meant that the more ITPP they had, the longer they could run for. Now, what seems to be going on is that ITPP binds to haemoglobin, and that's that oxygen-carrying pigment in the blood. And it makes it better able to absorb oxygen and also more likely to let go of it as well, so that oxygen is delivered and released in the muscles during exercise. Now, people with heart failure don't have a strong enough heart to pump enough blood around the body and deliver enough oxygen to carry out exercise. So it could be that ITPP could offer a ray of hope in the future one day that could help heart patients to be more active. It could also help perhaps mountaineers up in high altitudes where oxygen levels are very low and unfortunately this kind of begs um, to be used by athletes, people who have normal healthy hearts but perhaps who want to push themselves a little bit further. So perhaps they will be testing for ITPP in their future athletic events. I wonder if it'll be a urine test for ITPP. Thank you Helen. It's interesting because that's also directly stealing from what biology already does when you go altitude training the body boosts the level of another chemical called 2,3-BPG bisphosphoglycerate and that binds to your haemoglobin and does almost the same thing this just I think probably does it a little bit better
Thank you. Well, also this week, two very important papers on the subject of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is an important condition because roughly one person in five over the age of 75 is destined to be affected by it. And scientists this week, in two papers, one in the journal Science, this is by Amanta Theatar, who is at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. Uh, What they have done is to discover why the brain cells that are affected by Alzheimer's disease produce a chemical in the brain called beta-amyloid. Now, if you look inside someone's brain who has Alzheimer's disease, you find build-ups of this protein, beta-amyloid, in little plaques. And wherever there are these plaques, then the brain cells nearby die. And so scientists think that if you reduce the amount of beta-amyloid the brain is making, then it should be possible to reduce or perhaps even prevent Alzheimer's disease from occurring in the first place. What this group did was to look for genes that are linked to, to the production of beta-amyloid. So looking at cells in the dish, what they did was to, to manipulate the levels of various genes to see whether they impacted on the production of beta-amyloid. And they found one very interesting one. It's called GPR3, which is G-protein coupled receptor 3. That's why we call it GPR3. And this is only expressed in the nervous system, and it activates another gene. It's like a cellular on-off switch for a gene called gamma secretase and gamma secretase cuts a big long precursor protein called beta APP and it turns it into beta amyloid and what the researchers think because they were able to demonstrate in the dish that if you turn off this GPR3 gene you can reduce the beta amyloid production it might be possible to cut the production of beta amyloid in the brains of Alzheimer's patients by targeting this particular gene so that's a new way to tackle Alzheimer's disease. The second important paper that came out this week is from Juan Carlos Diaz. Uh, he's based in Bethesda, Maryland. He's got a paper in PNAS. And they've been looking at why it is that this beta amyloid should be bad for brain cells anyway. And one theory is that it snuggles up next to a nerve cell and then forms a pore or an artificial channel in the cell membrane of the nerve. And this allows large amounts of calcium to get into the cell. And calcium is a very powerful stimulus. It signals to nerve cells to become very, very active. And so blocking that channel ought to make cells less vulnerable and therefore not die. So just working in the dish, what they did was to make two molecules. One of them is called MRS2485, another one's called MRS2481, and these are capable of blocking these thought to be uh, new channels created by beta amyloid. And when they did tests on cells cultured in a dish and they added beta amyloid to the cells and some of these molecules, the cells all survived, like control cells that had had nothing added to them. But when they did the experiment with none of their new molecule, just beta amyloid, the cells died. So this strongly suggests that they're on the right lines and they've identified two molecules that could be a new way to treat Alzheimer's disease in the future. Obviously, they've got to prove they're safe, they've got to prove that they work, but at the same time, certainly a ray of hope for an important disease. Helen. Well, my last story for the news this week comes from the world of the animals and the news that a new group of birds has joined the ranks of long-distance endurance flyers, and that's the songbirds. For the first time, scientists have been able to mount tiny tracking devices onto these tiny little birds and gather information about where they move around in the US. And this is um, Bridget Suchbury from the York University in Toronto in Canada and her team who attach tiny geolocators to 14 wood thrushes and 20 purple martins, all types of songbirds that live in the US. Um, and that was in their breeding grounds in Pennsylvania in the US in 2007. Then in 2008, they found um, five thrushes and two martins that still had their um, tags on them. And they downloaded the information, which was basically about light levels and time from which they could actually reconstruct the latitude and longitude um, based on the times of sunrises and sunsets showing where they were. Um, And they found that these songbirds could fly over 300 miles a day, which is astonishing, considering that they're really quite tiny. We never knew that songbirds really flew this far and this quickly. 
They also found that the birds flew over six times faster in the spring when they returned from the US compared to when they fly south, because where they're going is Central and South America to areas where they feed up during the winter. Now, this sort of information is really important because um, over the last couple of decades, songbirds have been doing really badly. They've been declining. This will help us understand a bit more about their life cycle, their, what they're up to, and it will gauge how much environmental problems, things like habitat loss and climate change, are likely to affect them. So hopefully we can start doing something about it. An intriguing finding, though. 300 miles in a day is not to be sniffed at, is it? Thank you, Helen. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. Also in the news this week, scientists at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta have discovered the genetic, boom root, here we go, of all teeth. They've been looking at a kind of fish called a cichlid, and they have teeth both in their mouth and also in the throat. And they've noticed that the, the development of both sets of teeth is controlled by the same sets of genes, the same genes also that control the patterns of the growth of hair and feathers in other animals. So they could shed some light on a number of evolutionary changes and questions that we're trying to answer. Well, Dr Todd Streelman's one of the authors on this paper. It's in the Public Library of Science this week. Hello, Todd. Hi there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us a little bit about this discovery. How did you find this? Well, we study a, a very unique group of fishes from Lake Malawi in East Africa. And what's so fascinating about them is that they express a tremendous diversity of all sorts of things like color patterns and brain function and, and then of course also their teeth. So we were able to make use of this natural diversity to begin to ask the question about how they actually make teeth in two different places on their body. And once we found the answer to that, we put this information together with, with lots of information in the literature to try to understand how teeth were made a long, long time ago, and then also to try to understand the things in common between all teeth that we presently know about. So what was the sort of genetic clue that tells you where the, where the teeth had come from in the first place? Well, this is one of, the, one of the interesting things that many people don't know, is the coevolutionary history of teeth and jaws. So teeth first evolved about uh, half a billion years ago, and they evolved in organisms that did not have jaws, interestingly enough. So they evolved first in the pharynx, deep in the throat. And then, of course, they also evolved on the oral jaw, the jaw in the front of our face, when that jaw first appeared in vertebrate history. And so, as you mentioned, in the fishes we study, they have teeth both on the oral jaw, but they also have teeth back in this ancestral location for teeth. And so we use a technique called in situ hybridization, which is just a way to visualize where and when genes are active. And we studied a number of molecules that we had some inkling might be involved in dentitions. And so we identified two things. We identified this ancient set of genes. And that ancient set of genes is the set of genes that's on in the pharynx when teeth are made. And then secondly, we identified a core set of genes and that core set represents the gene network that's active in all teeth, from the fishes we study to sharks to mice, and of course in your teeth as well. I was going to say, when you study an early human embryo, you can see the same vestiges of the development of a, an early fish occurring in us. For instance, we get gills at certain stages of development too, don't we? We get these branchial arches, which uh, some of them turn into things like our eardrums and our tonsils. In fish, of course, there would have been gills, but superimposed on that is this pattern of genes that gives us teeth. 
That, that's right. And so the, there's a very old rule in evolutionary biology called ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And so that just means that in a very coarse way, if you look at a contemporary organism, you look at its development, you can learn something about evolutionary vestiges by studying early phases of its development. That's one of the things we took advantage of. We also, of course, were able to identify some differences between this ancestral network active in these throat teeth and the core network that's active in the oral jaw teeth of most organisms. And we think those are probably some of the genes that tell us about some of the things that have changed as dentitions have evolved for half a billion years. So, for instance, in the fishes we study, they replace every single tooth about every 50 to 100 days. And so this is one of those things that we think, and other people have suggested also, links teeth to other structures like feathers and hairs that also have this capacity for regeneration. Of course, your teeth are replaced a single time, but other mammals like the mouse never replace their teeth. So these are aspects of, of dentitions that have been lost as teeth have evolved. And some of those interesting regenerative capacities are still present in both the pharyngeal and the oral teeth of the fish we study. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. That was Todd Strillman, who is from Georgia Tech and who's explaining how they've found the genes that are the root of all teeth. And you never know, perhaps using those genes we might be able to generate a new set of teeth for mine when they clap out. Thank you, Todd. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Well, I'm afraid that that's all we have for this week's News Flash. Thank you very much for listening. This Naked Scientist News Flash featured Chris Smith and Helen Scales, along with our guest Todd Streelman, and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed this News Flash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. You can visit us on the web at thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.